Isaiah 65. We are almost done with this wonderful book that we've been studying for many months. <laughs> Actually, a few years. A couple of years. I don't want to say a few, but a couple of years. And uh, we're going to complete the 65th chapter tonight, beginning with verse 17. Let's uh, turn there. And uh, I want to read uh, verses 17 through 19, and then pray, and then ask God to, to teach us and to lead us. Isaiah 65, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Shall we pray? Father, we are thankful for the blessing and the privilege of joining together tonight to read and to study your word, that we, Lord, might grow in knowledge by your grace, by your mercy, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would indeed anoint us and bless us with your spirit. And may we have open hearts, Lord God, to your word tonight, but may we also seek to rightly divide your word, that uh, indeed we will see the truth of it, not only for our time, but Lord, especially for the time that is to come. Help us in understanding these things tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the lessons that uh, we've been learning and studying in the book of Isaiah is that of blending together the, the blending together of certain prophecies that may present both a near and a far fulfillment in one verse or possibly in one phrase. For example, there is a blending of the idea of Christ's first and second coming in a passage that we studied not too long ago in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, where it says, and, and again, I want to remind you that this is something that Jesus himself stated in the Gospel of Luke, but he says here, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord <clears throat> and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and so on and so forth. But verse 1 plus the first phrase of verse 2 refer to the very first coming of Jesus. While the second phrase of verse 2, where it says, and the day of vengeance of our God, points to his second coming. Now, of course, we studied this in detail back when we had this passage before us. But in other words, uh, those two events, the first and the second coming, those two events are compressed in that prophecy. And yet they're speaking of two very different times. 
So such is the case then with the last half of Isaiah 65, where we're beginning today, uh, beginning with our text here in verse 17. And what is of great importance before we press on is the context from which we came into this particular passage. That is, contrasting the two types of people in the land. Now, before we reached chapter 65, there was a prayer, a prayer from the remnant, a remnant of believers. Uh, In Isaiah's time, it would have been speaking of those who would hear the message in Babylon. And uh, these were those who were crying out to God that there would no longer be enemies oppressing them. And then, of course, that being the near fulfillment, the far fulfillment, would be the many of the remnant in that time of Antichrist, a time that is to come. So, the contrasting then of the two types of people in the land, those who forsake the Lord and those who serve the Lord, those who would be the resistors, those uh, in contrast to those who would be the remnant. Go back, if you will, to verse 11 as we kind of get a little bit of a review of where we've been. In verse 11 it says, But you are those who forsake the Lord. Now he's speaking not to the remnant, but in fact to the many others who don't believe in the truth of God's Word and and in the promises that God has given them, if they would just believe and trust in Him. But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad. And if you remember, Gad was... The word uh, was the Phoenician word for fortune. And who furnish a drink offering for many. The word many is the Phoenician word for destiny. And therefore I will number you for the sword and you shall all bow bow down uh, to the slaughter. Because when I called you, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear. But did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat. And here's the contrast. My servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. So the remnant will be blessed, but those who could have been blessed if they had believed and entrusted the Lord, he says to them, you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. Now, to counter those who think that Isaiah is in some way a universalist, because there are those who would think that at some point Isaiah is just saying, at this point, verse 17 of our text, well, you know, there's a new heaven and a new earth, so in fact, everybody is going to be taken care of, or, or that all the Jews are going to be saved, and, and no one's really going to perish. To counter that particular thought that in some way Isaiah is a universalist in the sense that his vision of a new heaven and new earth draws that picture that all Israel will be saved. The verses I just read to you, verses 11 through 14, should make it clear that there is a distinct contrast between those who are God's servants and those who are not. Those who seek Him and those who do not. So their destinies are as different as light and darkness. And this is something that is found throughout the whole of Scripture. And I don't know how some universalists come up 
uh, well, I do know. They take one verse out of context and they blow that particular verse up and say, well, see, this is what God said, without looking at the whole context of Scripture. But the fact of the matter is you have to look at the whole counsel of God. And then you have to look at where we live and how we live today and what we see living around us today or what we see happening around us as we live in this world before the coming of the Lord. You know, the ugliness of, 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 of the, the sinful nature of man, uh, you know, rearing up its ugly head each and every day of our lives. If you keep uh, an eye on the news, every day there's something that, that just disgusts us that people are doing to other people. The hatred that is being shown. I, I, just thinking of, of the other day, uh, turning on the TV just to watch the news in the morning, finding out that some 70-year-old uh, grandmother was shot to death because of somebody had, who had road rage. Things like this, you know. Or they show us those videos from stores where kids jump in and, you know, cause all kinds of destruction just to steal or to rob as far as, you know, going into convenience stores and holding people up, shooting them. It's a crazy world. And this is all just going to be okay because God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth? Well, it will be for those who believe in the Lord. And this is one reason why we need to be sharing the Word of God, sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, sharing the love of Christ with people. But with all this in mind, we, we turn now to this very promise of redemption in the ultimate answer to the prayer of the remnant. The prayer that the remnant was giving to the Lord, saying, Lord God, deliver us from this oppression and this hatred. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. This is God speaking to His people. This is God answering that cry of the remnant. And from this very verse to the very end of the chapter, we're going to be dealing with the kingdom age primarily. When I say the kingdom age, I'm talking about the millennial kingdom of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ on this earth when he comes that second time to rule and to reign from Jerusalem. This will be that time after the seven year tribulation. So, We're going to be dealing with that kingdom age primarily, but we will also see woven. This is why I was saying that the the blending of, 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 uh, of two time periods, as it were, we'll see woven or blended or compressed into this section the idea of the new heaven and new earth, just as the two comings of Christ were woven together through Scripture, as I, I stated earlier. So as we go along, we will see how Isaiah is blending the age of eternity where sin and death will be no more, verses 17 through 19, with the Messianic age or the Millennial Kingdom, where Christ will reign on this earth for a thousand years. He actually gives the blessing of eternity first before he goes on to say, but before that comes, there is this period of a thousand years. But it's a good period if you believe and trust and obey my word. And so this is what we're looking at in verse 17. It's interesting that the Hebrew word here in verse 17 for create 
is not referring to the reassembling of existing material. It's not like the Lord is just going to take this earth the way it is and just kind of, you know, crunch it up into a ball and, you know, mix it up and, and then all of a sudden come back out and, and with that same substance create another heaven and earth. It is actually the word bara in the Hebrew, which means to create something out of nothing. It is the very same word used in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created, God bara, out of nothing God created the heavens and the earth. Consequently, this is not speaking of the, king, the kingdom age, but of the creation of new heavens and a new earth. This is the eternal state where the curse will be done away with, dealt uh, uh, with, uh, death will be abolished, no more tears, uh, the past things will not come to our remembrance. Part of this verse. As we shall see, this is not true of the kingdom age, or what we will call the millennium from here, or the millennial reign of Christ. So there's some distinctions between that period of the eternal, or the, the eternal state and the millennial kingdom. I want you to consider, if you will, Revelation 21. So I'd like you to turn all the way to the back of your Bibles. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. For here is the passage that we are told there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. John, in his revelation, says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, we'll, we'll define what it means to have the earth and the heaven pass away. Uh, Peter will define that for us in just a moment. But uh, he goes on and says, Also, there was no more sea. I don't want to get into you know, the details of this particular chapter uh, uh, I'm just trying to give you a broad picture of what we're, we're seeing here. Verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. So you'll notice there's a new heaven and new earth, and then a new Jerusalem. There is some sense of that, actually, in verses 17 and 18 of our text in Isaiah 65. But nonetheless, the, still, the, the thought is, there's going to be really a new Jerusalem here on this earth, because Christ is reigning in that earth, uh, earthly kingdom for a thousand years. But there's also going to be a new heaven and uh, new earth and a new Jerusalem that is a heavenly Jerusalem. And this is the one that John is seeing. He saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now, skip over to Revelation 22, verses 3 through 5, to get a, a little broader picture of this uh, time frame. Verse 3 says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. You know, that kind of draws you back even to Genesis chapter 1 too, Or Genesis chapter 1 also. That uh, speaks of uh, the Lord creating light. Let there be light. And there was light. 
Literally in the Hebrew it says light be. God said light be and light was. And you think now after that on another day God created the sun and the moon and the stars. So that particular light is to remind us of this light that is to come yet but a light that comes from the Lord himself. The Lord gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. So now we have that picture of that eternal state. A new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And all these things that are going to be totally different. Things are going to be just out of our mind in the sense of out of our remembrance. We don't remember the bad any longer. We don't remember the wickedness. We don't remember these things because now our hearts, our minds, our thoughts are filled with the presence of God and of Christ. But Peter used this promise, going back to Isaiah 65, verse 17, Peter used this promise of the new heaven and earth to encourage believers to holy living. So it isn't just a matter of saying, hey, there's, going, there's coming a great day when, when everything is going to change, everything's going to become great and all, and you don't have to do anything about it. Well, you really don't have to do anything about it because God already has a plan, but there is something that you do until that day, and that is to live right for God. And notice, if you will, Second Peter chapter three, verses ten to thirteen. Now, remember, I, I was saying the other day, or not too long ago, that uh, uh, that there's a distinction between the day of the Lord and the day of Christ. The day of Christ, of course, is the day that Jesus comes for His church. The day that Jesus comes to take us home. But the, the day of the Lord is that day that, uh, that that is speaking primarily about the judgment. The day that that the Lord is coming to judge the earth. So it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. Now remember, we, we're, we're told in, in, in John's revelation that the heavens and the earth are going to pass away. But here's, here's more, uh, uh, a more clear uh, definition of what's taking place. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. Uh, that must be the big bang. You know, the scientists got all wrong. They thought the Big Bang was, you know, millions and billions of years ago. No, the Big Bang's coming. That's when this earth is over. They'll pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And therefore, and that word therefore is, is, is quite significant here. In summation to this particular thought, since all of these things will be dissolved, notice, the world is going to be dissolved, the heavens as we know things today, the universe as we may know it today, is going to be dissolved. Since the, all these things will be dissolved, therefore, what manner of persons ought you to be now in holy conduct and godliness? What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? You know, people want to look for the coming of the day of the Lord, but you know what? We need to remember what we are to be as we're waiting. It says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved. And you know, do you notice that Peter is repeating this? Again, remember that lesson of the Scriptures? If something is said once, well, it's true. But if something is said twice, take note. If something is said three times, take note a lot. (laughs) It's said twice here. 
By the way, I just want to remind you, heaven's going to be dissolved. And let me remind you again, the heavens are going to be dissolved. Being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent, with fervent heat. Nevertheless, notice verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. If we're looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, then what should be our heart's desire now? Is to live our lives in the righteousness of Christ so that when the Lord comes, we are found doing that which pleases Him, which honors Him, which glorifies Him. Not us, but Him. I don't know what it is about man that likes to be glorified before man. To have the attention, to have the focus, you know, the focus. I just want people to say, I just want people to know, Jesus is coming, let's look to Him. Jesus is coming, let's, let's wait for Him. Let's be about our Father's business. Let's do those things that honor, bless, please, and glorify God. Because He can come at any moment. He can come at any time. Are you trying to throw some fear factor at us? Yes, <laughs> I am. You know why? Because the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I want you to be wise about these last days. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's reverence. It's respect. It's awe. It's worshipful. And it's loving. We have a God that loved us first. We are to love Him for what He's done for us. The second part of Isaiah 65, verse 17, also gives indication that the prophet is not speaking of the millennial earth, simply because there are other passages of Scripture referring to the millennium, showing that there will be definite remembrances of former times on earth. So then we know that it's not really speaking of the millennial kingdom, but the eternal state that's come. For example, the temple ritual that will exist during the millennium, when you read Ezekiel chapters 40 through 46, what you're going to do tonight, right, for homework, only if you want to. But Ezekiel 40 through 46, uh, you know, we're given, you know, what's taking place in the temple. Well, that's a remembrance of the former days of the Levit Levitical sacrifice. So it's a remembrance. Psalm 72, when you read Psalm 72, it speaks of the former nations of the world remaining after judgment to serve the Lord and Israel. In that, there is a remembrance of what they were and what they are now. So, when you read verse 18, or I should say the second part of verse 17, the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Why? Because that's the eternal thought, the eternal state. You don't remember. And I think that some of us are going to be tremendously glad not to remember some of the things that we've gone through to get to where we are today in Christ. I, I mean, let's, let's face it. I mean, we want to forget these things. I mean, some of us can boast, if we wanted to, boast of just wicked lives. <laughs> this is what I did. And, and, and it stays with us to some extent for the, for the sake of testimony. 
But not to let that become the most important thing. The most important thing is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. We become a little one when we do what? When we surrender our heart to the Lord Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. We still have the thoughts. We, we can still remember. One day, all that will be taken care of. You won't remember. There won't be any need for it. Because in eternity, what we have before us, and I don't know what we do in eternity, except to worship the Lord. Day and day and day and day and day. I, I'm saying that because there's no night. Day and day. Day in and day in and day in. <laughs> And then we move on to verse 18 and 19. It says, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. Now, that word, but there is kind of, um, you know, here we are being told that he's going to create new heavens and new earth. But be glad and rejoice for what, in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing. Let's come back to the fact that there is a Jerusalem. And as I mentioned before, there's going to be somewhat of a new Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. It's not going to be like the Jerusalem that some of us have seen when we've gone over to Israel. As much as we love that trip, and, and I want to encourage you, we're trying to get going again in March of next year. That's a commercial, by the way. But the fact of the matter is that it's not going to be the, very, it's not going to be the same because when the millennial kingdom be, begins, of course, Christ is going to be reigning on the throne. How wonderfully different that's going to be. But that's where he will reign from. We know that he's going to come to Jerusalem because we are told in the book of Zechariah that his feet are going to be on the Mount of Olives. Before that valley, before that eastern gate is moved out of the way and, and he goes in with his saints. He says, Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing. What is Jerusalem today? It is a trembling cup. And, and we know that when we go there, it's so divided, and they want to divide it more. And they want to give it away. I say they. Who's they? Remember as little kids, your parents discovered something wrong, and did you do this? No, they did it. And we don't know who they is. Well, we know who they is. And it's really sad that some of the they is some people in our own country trying to divide up the land that belongs, first of all, to God, who has given that land to His people Israel. But that's for another night. We're looking ahead to the creation of Jerusalem as a rejoicing. And her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. God, I mean, that should excite us. And that should also remind us that God still loves His people no matter where they are right now spiritually. God is going to bring them back. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her. Is there weeping in Jerusalem today? There's much weeping in Jerusalem today. 
The Jews are weeping for peace. The Arabs are weeping when the Israelis have to take action against terrorists. But there's a day coming where this will no longer be. There's going to be a Jerusalem also in the eternal state, which this is, is you know, we're getting a little picture of, of that in the Millennial Kingdom to point to that new Jerusalem as we read early in the book of Revelation. But there is going to be a Jerusalem in the eternal state along with the new heavens and the new earth. And that Jerusalem will be a source of joy not only to the Lord but to the whole earth. Because it will be a city of holiness, it will be a city of harmony, and it will be a city of happiness. Holiness, harmony, and happiness. Three things that, even today, aren't existing there. There may be some pockets of it to here and there. But overall, the true change will come. When the Lord says, I create a new heaven and a new earth. And a new Jerusalem. Go back to Revelation 21, if you will, for just a moment in verses 22 through 27. Let's broaden that view of, of this holy city. Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27 says, But I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. <laughs> Let's go to temple to pray. Let's go to temple to worship the Lord. And we're going to see the Lord. Because <laughs> He's the temple. But that shouldn't be foreign to us because we <clears throat> are told in, in the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians, that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit ourselves. We're temples. So it shouldn't be a strange thing to think that, you know, God doesn't need a, a, a place made with human hands. All along, this is what God has wanted. Oh, he honored David's desire to build a temple. And, and of course, David couldn't build it because he was a man of war. Then Solomon built the temple. Solomon's name uh, is, uh, means peace. Or the name peace or the word peace is in his name. And honors that desire to build a temple, but... We, God doesn't need a temple made by hands. He is the temple. See, this is what's wrong sometimes in our own society. Is sometimes people worship temples instead of worship the, the Lord who we come to, to honor. I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb or its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. You know, it's interesting that um, there's, there's somewhat of a, a, a selectiveness in, in the nations that God is allowing, first of all, in the millennial kingdom, to be here during the thousand-year reign of Christ. I'll talk about that a little later. But then also interesting that there will be nations mentioned uh, in the New Jerusalem. 
The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. There's no need for gates. Why? Because there's always day. <laughs> you know, the old ancient cities would be open, but as soon as the sun would go down, all the gates were closed to protect the city. No need for protection if God, first of all, is the temple, if God is the very focal point of, of, of the city of Jerusalem, if God and the Lamb are and the Lamb is the light, well, <laughs> there's no need for those gates. They shall bring the glory of the honor of the nations and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall be by no means enter it anything that defiles or, or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there is, you see, a responsibility of man to know God and to know His Son, to know Jesus Christ, to believe in what Jesus Christ came to do for man, to believe that He came from the very presence of the Father, to take upon himself flesh, to come as a man, to humble himself, even to death, the death of the cross, to die for the sins of men, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is saying, but you who believe will not perish, but your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. So that on that day, there will be no question. Because you have abided in Christ in this life. So shall you abide in Him for eternity, forever. Now, from this eternal state, Isaiah moves us back to the millennium. Look at verses 20 and following. We're going to start with verse 20. It says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die 100 years old. But the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. Now that's interesting because we, we know what it says about the eternal state where there will be no more sin and, and none of the abominations that existed on this earth are going to be able to even enter into the uh, heavenly kingdom. So uh, Isaiah, who has now shifted gears for us from eternity to a time that seems likely to see uh, death occurring as, as rare as it may be, there's still mention of death. If at a hundred years of age a person is still considered to be a child, then most people will live through those hundred years and not die. Much like the days before the flood. Go back and look at the genealogies of those who existed after the fall of man, all the way to Methuselah, 969 years of age. That's a lot. That's almost. That's almost a thousand. <laughs> He almost lived a millennia. Of course, believers will have glorified bodies and will not die. Those who have come to Jerusalem 
in the millennial kingdom, those of us who come back with the Lord after that seven year period of tribulation, we come to reign with Him, we're in glorified bodies. So we don't, we don't have to worry. I say we, you know, you know I mean, it's, it's hard to humble ourselves when you say that, but, it's, but that's just the facts. Believers will have glorified bodies and will not die. But the fact that there is still the possibility of death signifies the ability to sin. We are taught from Scripture that in the millennium, Satan will be bound for those thousand years, and yet people will still be able to sin, though it will be rare. Again, these are rarities in that time. But it will still happen. And when a person does sin, God will deal with that situation immediately. Unrighteousness will not continue. And some may even die because of their sin. You see, it is not only the devil we can blame for our actions, but our flesh that is at work in us and will still work in some who enter into the kingdom age in physical bodies. Think about it. James said in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, he said, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But it says each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. That even comes before being enticed. Do you notice that? Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. It isn't Flip Wilson, as Geraldine, saying, the devil made me do it. Some of you are saying, who's Flip Wilson and who's Geraldine? For those of you who are from my time or before, (laughs) you know who I'm talking about. We don't blame things on, you know. Well, remember it was even in the garden. God comes to Adam. Adam says to the woman, you gave me. I made me eat of the fruit. And it's like God looks over to the woman. The woman says, the serpent. They all got their just desserts. But you see the blame game? So much easier to put it on somebody else than to take the blame ourselves. To be like that tax collector on those steps before the temple, not even able to go in, and he's beating his breast. Have mercy on me, the sinner. Not so much a sinner. He just says the sinner as if he was it. Lord, it doesn't matter what everybody else does. I'm the sinner. I've sinned against you. David understood that when confronted by the prophet Nathan. You're the man, David. And as if there was no one else that had ever sinned before, David said, It was me. And in his Psalms he writes, I have sinned against thee and thee only. I have sinned. 
He didn't bring anybody else into the picture. I've sinned. But the millennial reign of Christ will not only be a time of biological change, it will also mark a time of social change when perfect justice reigns over all the earth. You see, this is something we would love to see. This is what that generation I talk about a lot back in the 60s that drank Coca-Cola and said, we want to teach the world to sing. You know that one? I forgot that one of our members works for Coca-Cola. Thinks I'm always picking on him. You know, that kind of thought, you know, the 70s when we were protesting the war and and even in our day and time, people are protesting everything that's happening from the governmental perspective. We want perfect justice. Well, look at verses 21 and 22 of our text. It says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. Now that sounds kind of mundane, but folks, it was a major problem in the days and times that Isaiah lived as well as even today. It says they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Never again will someone be robbed of the fruits of their labor. If a person builds a house, no one will steal it from them. If a person plants a vineyard, no one will steal the fruit of it. The Lord promises that His chosen will enjoy the work of their hands. And as the days of a tree, so shall it be the days of, the, of my people. Hey, trees live a long time. Certain ones anyway. I figure that the ones that are in the kingdom, in the millennial kingdom, are going to last an even longer time. And he says, as long as they live, then you live it. And I'm protecting you and I'm giving you what you need. That perfect justice. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. The Lord promises that His chosen will enjoy the work of their hands. It may not seem profound to you, but for those who live in profoundly unjust times, this simple justice is simply and hopefully an encouragement. And one significant reason for this justice is due to the binding of Satan for a thousand years, something referred to earlier in Revelation 20. If you'll turn to Revelation 20 in verses 1 through 3, it says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him. I like that phrase. He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. Shut up. I I know that that's not what it means, but it just sounds good. You ever thought about all the things that the devil has tried to tell you and tell you to do against the will of God? And he just talks and talks and talks and you just entice the one to go that way. You just want him to say, shut up. God shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. You see, that's where this idea comes that you know how much God has given us the ability to make choices. Because you see, love is a tremendous choice to make. And if God just made us robots, there wouldn't be anything to it. 
But he made us in his image and gave us the ability to choose and to think that we have all these choices in the world today. But God said, I loved you so much that I gave my only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For I did not send him into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So he's going to be released for a little time after the thousand years. And there will be those on the earth. And we'll, we will not talk too much about it, but there are, those, there are those who, even still after a thousand years of seeing Christ reign and perfect, uh, near perfect justice, certainly with Christ reigning as perfect justice. I say that because, again, the choices that man makes. So consider that in the millennium, the citizens of this new world will be living in a transformed and perfect environment. Look at verses 23 and 24. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. So that gives us an indication that even in the millennium, there will be children given. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. So no longer will there be an inefficiency and wasted labor. Some of you who are supervisors, bosses, you know, uh, uh, whatever your position might be where you have people working, one of the things that bothers you the most, I know this, one of the things that bothers you the most is the inefficiency and the wasted time and effort of certain people on their jobs. Wasted because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. That's not going to be happening in the kingdom. No longer there will be this inefficiency and wasted labor. No longer will there be problems at work, disappointments and frustrations, the big bottle of Rolaids in your bottom drawer of your desk that you take and go like this to get through the day. No longer will there be pressure and distress, sorrow and failure. All the difficulties that crowd a person's life will be eliminated in the age of Christ's reign. For the most part, children will not be doomed to trouble or failure. Whether physically or morally. Lawlessness, gangs, criminality as a whole, it will cease. I think there's a couple of verses of Scripture that we ought to pay attention to in that that millennial time that, uh, of Christ's reign, Psalms 2 verse 9 says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. I, I would behave. If Christ is reigning with a rod of iron, Ooh. I mean, we know His love. He extends His love, but you know what? Rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Behave. Revelation 2.27, taking from this particular psalm, it says, He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessels, as also I've received from my Father. Uh, so, I think I'd listen to what the Lord says. In a thousand years, you know, you've got to live a long time. The citizens of the millennial kingdom will, for the most part, have bro- unbroken fellowship and communion with the Lord. That's verse 24. They will have unbroken fellowship and communion with the Lord. I said, for the most part. 
Because people will pray and God will answer. If people pray, God will, will hear them. The relationship between the Lord and His people will be so close that even before a believer calls out to Him, He will answer. And as a believer speaks, the Lord will meet that need. And so you're saying, how come He doesn't do that now? But He does. Listen to Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. (laughs) But ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened to you. I love the way that God takes, you know, one language and then translates it to us in another, and then all of a sudden you look at ask, seek, knock. A-S-K. Wow, it says ask. Isn't God great with languages? Now, this is not to say that everyone on the earth during the millennium will be saved, but that the opportunity for such a close relationship will be widely enjoyed and widely available. Remember what we just read in Revelation 20. When Satan is released from his confinement, let me add to what it says, verses 7 through 10 of Revelation 20. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Well, that's pretty much... What's the end of that rebellion? The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. By the way, there will be a day and night in that place of torment. But it will always look like night because it's just darkness. Even in the millennial age, there is no forced acceptance of Christ's rule and reign, though righteousness is enforced throughout the whole earth. The hearts of those allowed to populate the earth during this time are still subject to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the numbers will probably be reversed. Think about this for a moment. For example, today there is but a remnant that is saved, because the Lord said, many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 22, verse 14. But you know what else he said? He said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and, dif- and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. That's here and now. But in the millennial kingdom, the few will be those who don't know the Lord and are not saved. So there will be some sense of a reversal. You see. Well, let's finish off here in verse 25. We're told that the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. I know that sometimes we we think it says the lion and the lamb, but it says the wolf and the lamb. Just to clarify, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
I've never seen a lion, in, in, you know, on those National Geographic things, you know, eating any straw. Pretty much they just lay on straw. They eat meat. A lot of meat. But in the millennial kingdom, the, the lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. Well, that doesn't change. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So during the millennial reign of Christ, nature itself will be transformed, more than likely to the state of the original creation when man was given the responsibility of naming the animals and having dominion over them. Nothing on earth will cause pain or destruction. Nothing on earth. You have to go back to Isaiah 11 to see this, but in Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9, there again it says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And you know, when you stop there, you think, if that happens today, that's just, they're sitting together, and one of them is the meal. But not in the millennial kingdom. It says, And a little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. I tell you, Coca-Cola thinks they've really got this nailed. I'm sorry to pick on Coca-Cola again, but you've seen those Christmas commercials, you know, where, where the, you know, the penguins and the, and the polar bears are together. I mean, penguins, you know, when, when, when the polar bear sees a penguin, it's, it's like lunch. <laughs> but see, they, 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 they think they've got the millennial kingdom nailed. Well, you know, but that's kind of interesting, but that's the way it is. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Same phrase from verse 25. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Interesting what the knowledge of the Lord does. That when we know the Lord, we're also submitted to the Lord. We're submitted to His wonder. We're submitted to His nature. We're submitted to His knowledge. We're submitted to His sovereignty. We're submitted to His power. And all things are as they should be. A radical change will take place in the very nature of animals, transforming them from being wild and ferocious to being tame and peaceful. The wolf and the lamb will feed together as, the, as will the lion and the ox. And even the snake or serpent, a symbol of Satan, will be harmless and no longer feared by so many. However, the snake will continue to feed on the dust of the ground. As prophesied, by the way, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. How prophetic that was. The bruised heel of Jesus on the cross. And yet, the crushing, the crushing blow of Jesus rising from the dead. Satan thought, it's over. Jesus said, no, 
is just begun. Our victory. Our victory by our champion. You know, there are a lot of people today saying we need to be champions. I just want to submit to one champion. The one who could hang on a cross and die and shed his blood and be buried and on the third day rise again from the dead. He's my champion. He's your champion. That's Jesus. That's who we preach. That's who we love. And that's who we serve. And so in closing, the world will be quite different. Biologically, spiritually, socially, and even ecologically. What has become throughout the history of the church and ignoring or denying of the promise of the literal millennial reign of Jesus Christ on the earth is contradicted time and time again, verse after verse of Scripture. You see, there are more than 400 verses in more than 20 different passages of the Old Testament alone which deal with this time when Jesus rules and reigns personally over the whole of planet earth and creation groans for that day. Creation groans for that day. Let me leave you with Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Now we could stop there and say, well, see, creation groans. All creation groans. But I want to close with verse 23. Because he says, not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan, within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Folks, we as believers in Jesus Christ, we're groaning for that day of Christ's return. We're tired of these bodies. Tired of the way we have to pamper them and protect them and kill them to death. (laughs) Exercise them. Feed them. Weed them. (laughs) Need them. We're groaning, folks. And the fact that we're in this time continuum that makes us, you know, get older... Second law of thermodynamics. Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly. Let's pray.